Good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you are with us as we uh, sing praise to our God, as we sing Alleluia, because our Lord, he reigns. Um, it is the right thing for us to declare and to sing. And he is the one to whom we come and we give our praise and the one to whom we come and expect to hear from in his word. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're going to look at the very end of James 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 1011 of James chapter 1. So um, here at Christ the King, uh, we believe that God's word is that. It is his very word. That the Bible, that the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments are not simply um, pious advice, they're not pithy statements, they're not um, basically the, the ancient Near East version of a TED Talk. <laughs> no, they are much more than that. They are much more significant than that. They are God's rule for how we are to live and move and have our being. They are God's direction for what it means to be his people. We value his word and we lift it up. And so for that reason, um, I, I just want to say, as I said a few weeks ago, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we want you to have one. So take the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. Just take it home with you. Um, it is yours. Um, just let us know so we can replenish it. But we want you to have God's word because that's how important we think it is. We think that it's important for all of us to have it and to be able to read it and study it and dwell upon it throughout the week. And so if you don't have one, please take one with you. But this isn't just something that we've come up with ourselves. This isn't just something that Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia in 2019 came up with, that, that this is God's very word. We have not elevated it because we think that that's smart to do. We have done it because this is what God's word does. The biblical writers tell us of how important God's word is for us and how important it is for us to, to follow and to be led by. And that's exactly what James is going to talk about this morning. And so if you would follow along, James 1, beginning in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the word world. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it and given it to us. We thank you for the ways in which your word convicts our souls and leads us in the way that we are to go. And so we pray that you would do that again. 
lead us by the light of your word along the path that you would have for us. And allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be in line with the truth of your word so that we would give you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So recently, uh, I read the uh, very dark book, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray. I know some of you have read this book. Uh, Oscar Wilde's very dark novel, and it is dark. Um, Dorian Gray centers on this man, Dorian. Dorian Gray, <laughs> as the title gives it away. Dorian Gray. This is a man who, by every estimation, by every accounting of those who have seen him, he is a beautiful man. He is handsome. He is uh, full of life and beauty. Everyone who sees him is drawn to him and can't help but, but, but be overwhelmed by how handsome this man is. But though Dorian is very beautiful, though he's full of life, he's also very, very vain. Early in the book, he, he, uh, it becomes very clear that he takes great pride in his appearance, and he laments that one day age will rob him of his beauty. It will take it away. And so because of that, he makes what, what amounts to be a deal with the devil, where he will not age, where over time, though, though years will go by, his face and his outward appearance will remain the same. And that's exactly what happens. Over time, he doesn't age. All his friends, all his buddies, all the people of the same age, they're getting older, and they're getting weaker, and they're getting closer to death. But Dorian remains young and beautiful and handsome. But what's interesting is that though he doesn't age inside, inside his soul and his heart is becoming shriveled. Though outwardly he is beautiful, his soul is becoming ugly. And this is depicted in the portrait of Dorian Gray. You see, early in the book, uh, an artist paints this beautiful picture. It's a very accurate depiction of Dorian. It, it's, it's filled with his beauty, and people marvel at it. And the artist himself said, this is my greatest work. I'll never paint again. And at first, that's what it is. It is this beautiful work, and it depicts his outward beauty. But, but over time, what's fascinating is that as Dorian doesn't age, and as his soul becomes darker, the painting starts to reflect his soul. You see, the painting starts to change. His face starts to have wrinkles, and, and his skin starts to sag, and his eyes become lifeless. And this once beautiful painting is now a depiction of a man who is very grotesque. And we understand, the reader as well as Dorian understand, that this is a depiction not of his outward appearance, but of his inward state. So what would he do? Well, what should he do? When he sees that this is what he is really like, that, that this darkness, this hardness of heart is what's occurring inside of him, what should he do? What would you expect him to do? Well, you'd expect him to turn from his ways, right? I mean, he's seeing the, the direction of his soul. You would expect him to turn away from that. You would expect him to replace his vice with virtue. You would expect him to put on purity rather than promiscuity. But instead of changing his ways, Dorian simply covers the painting and he puts it in a room and he locks the door and he forgets about it. You know, as I read that book, I couldn't help but think about James 1. And I couldn't help but think that what Dorian has done with that portrait is the very thing that some of us are inclined to do with God's word. 
You see, as, as we look on God's word, right, as we read God's word, as we come to church and we hear God's word, as we recite God's word, as we study God's word, it's easy for us to look upon God's word with our eyes, but as soon as we stop looking upon it, it's easily easy for us to go about our days and forget what we have looked on. It's easy to forget what we have read Right? We look on his word and we read it and we come to church and, and we figuratively, like Dorian, we throw a sheet upon it and forget what we have seen. And that's the very thing James is warning us against. Look at verses 22 through 24. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You see, James's concern is for the person who hears God's word, who reads it, who can talk about it, who can even formulate doctrine out of God's word, but it has no impact on his life. Right? The, the word has been heard, but it has not been acted upon. And what James is telling us is that this lack of doing God's word may be indicating a lack of true faith. Did you hear it? That's what he said, right? Those who hear it but don't do it, they deceive themselves. And what are they deceiving themselves about? That, well, well I've heard God's word. Maybe I've even memorized it. Maybe I can even read it in Greek and Hebrew. But it has had no impact on my life. So, but but, but I'm, I'm well with God. Right, my relationship with him, my standing with him is good. But what James is telling us is that just because you have heard it, if you do not do it, it may be you're not doing it because you have really not truly heard it. And it has not changed you. And so he's warning us. He's warning us that as God's people, as those who have heard God's word, we are to be doers of his word, not just hearers of it. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning, what doing God's word looks like. But before we get into doing God's word, we need to hear why we would do it. Okay, we need to hear why we would do it. And James gives us two reasons why we would do God's word. And the first is because God's word is the word that saves. Look at verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James is building off of what we heard at the end of last week when he said that God of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth. By his word, God gives us new life. So this new life that we have in Christ, it comes through his word because it is in the word that we learn of salvation. We hear the gospel, right? That word gospel simply means good news, right? The good news that Jesus lived a perfect life where we could not live it. The good news that Jesus died in our place. He took our sins and God's judgment upon himself. The good news that death could not contain him, but he rose to new life. And the good news that in doing all of this, Christ has saved us from our sins. You see, we hear this good news in God's word. Like, we, we can look at the world around us and learn many things, right? We can look at the world and we can understand the ways in which the world works and the different, in, you know, like math and science. We can look upon the world and we see those things, but the thing that the world can't tell us that God's word does is where salvation comes. It comes through Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we hear, that salvation comes through the preaching of God's word, through the hearing it and receiving it. 
I mean, that's what James said, that we would receive with meekness the implanted word. That word receive, it means take hold of, grasp, that we would accept it and believe it to be true. That's why we do God's word. That's why we put it into practice, because it is through this word that we find salvation. It is the word that saves. But God's word is also the word that frees. Look at what James calls it in verse 25. He says, he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, I would imagine that the vast majority of us, when we think of law, we do not think of freedom, right? We do not think of liberty when we think of law, right? What do we think of? We think of constraint. We think about how a law restrains us and restricts us, right? And we don't think about freedom, right? To be free means that we are free from laws, right? We can do whatever we want, but, but what we see here is that God's law is different than man's law, right? God's law isn't oppressive. It's actually freeing. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. He said, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what Paul is telling us is that we are not to return to the yoke of slavery. Now that yoke he's talking about is the yoke of sin. You see, it, apart from Jesus, we might think that we are living in freedom because we do whatever we want, we say whatever we want, we act what, however we want. But what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that is in freedom that is bondage. We are slaves to our sin. And what he's saying is that when we come to Christ, when we have received him and as we are following his word, we are actually free. We are free from sin. And we are free to live as God intended us to live. We are free to obey. I mean, look at what the rest of verse 25 says. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, James is telling us that God's law isn't oppressive, it's a blessing. It's a blessing because as we live in accordance with God's word, we are living how God intended for us to live. We are our most human when we are following God's word. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. I mean, Jesus himself said, do you remember? He said, those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And do you remember how he gives us rest? He gives us rest not by throwing off all yokes, but he gives us rest by placing his yoke upon us. Right? Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Right? That's what he tells us, that there is actually blessing, there is goodness to living in accordance with God's word. That's why we do it, because those who have been saved and freed from God's word will live in the midst of God's blessing as we do it. Okay, but how? So those are the whys. We move through those quickly, right? Why we do God's word is because it saves us and because it frees us, but, but really the focus of this passage is more about how we do God's word, how we are to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And, and there are many things that James could have pointed us to. Right? I mean, there are many things that the Bible calls us to, but there are three in particular that James focuses upon. 
when he calls us to do God's word, there are three that he focuses on. And I just want us to look at these three for the remainder of the sermon. And the first thing he says in doing God's word is that we are going to flee from sin. So look at verses 19 through 21. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then in verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And he talks about widows and orphans. And then he says, To keep oneself unstained from the world. Filthiness. Wickedness. That's what he calls our sin. And, he, and that's a good way to describe sin, isn't it? Filthy. It's a good way to describe it because after we've sinned, that's how we feel, don't we? Dirty. I mean, just think about the last time you got angry. So James says that we need to be slow to anger. Think about the last time you got angry. Not, not righteous indignation, not righteous anger, right? That's, that's another sermon. But, um, but, but let's be honest with ourselves. Like 99.9% .9 of the anger we feel isn't the righteous kind, right? At least maybe for me. <laughs> Maybe y'all are like 99.1% is not righteous, right? But, but I'm talking about sinful anger here, right? The anger that, that we experience towards maybe our child when we explode. Or, or the, 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 the anger that we experience towards our, our spouse when, when we rage. Or, or the more subtle anger, like the passive aggressiveness that we do towards our coworker. Okay, now I want you to think about the last time you got angry like that. And I want you to think about after you got angry. And after you calmed and it subsided and your blood pressure returned to normal. You feel pretty good about yourself? No. No, you feel gross, don't you? You feel filthy. You, it, it feels like you need to go take a shower, doesn't it? Because you know that you've been ugly. That you've been filthy. And, and that's exactly what James is telling us sin is like. That it is filthy. That's why he says, be, put it away. Flee from it. Run from it. Right? Lay it aside. And not just once, right? You, we know we just don't do it one time and then we're done. We, we heard that last week because temptation keeps coming up, right? It keeps coming up and it keeps trying to lead us away. We don't just do this once and are done with it, but we have to keep fleeing from it. Look at verse 27, keep oneself unstained from the world, right? Keep, it means it's a constant battle that we are engaged in. Now look, when, when we hear keep oneself unstained from the world, I imagine that many of us, we start to think, okay, so how is the best way for me to keep unstained? I know I'm just going to pull away. Right? I'm going to retreat. I'm going to build the figurative or maybe even literal sometimes walls around me so that the world cannot invade and it cannot make me dirty. Right? I, I know that we think this. But, but there's a couple of problems with this way of thinking, of trying to keep away from the filthiness of the world. The first problem is that even if I was left alone, I would still have my own filth to deal with, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what we heard last week. But beyond that, that's not how Jesus called us to engage with the world, is it? I mean, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus didn't pray, God, remove your people from the world. What he said, let them remain in the world, be, but not be of the world. 
And so the response isn't to pull away. The response isn't to keep the world at bay. The response is to live as distinctively word-oriented people in the midst of this world. And so that will mean that at times, as we live in the world, there are places we won't go. And there are things we will not say. And there are things that we will not look at. And we do it because we are people of God's word. That even while we live in the midst of the world, we live distinctively from the world by obeying God's word. And one of the distinctive ways of doing this is reflected in the next two things that James tells us to do. The first is that we would be promoters of mercy. So we do God's word by fleeing from sin. The next is we dispense mercy. Look what he says in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now in James's culture, the one that he's writing to, widows and orphans would have been some of the most needy of people. They would have been needy because in this culture, without a husband or a father, they wouldn't have anyone to provide for them their daily needs. And so James is calling on the church to show mercy and care for those who are in need. And really, this is just a continuation of the Old Testament, right? Because in Exodus chapter 22, James, or, uh, Moses writes that we are not to take advantage of a widow or an orphan. And in Isaiah chapter 1, we're told that God won't recognize the worship of his people until they repent and they seek justice and correct oppression and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. You see, what God is telling us is that his people, when we obey his word, are going to be people of mercy. That we are going to see the needs of the people around us and we are going to seek to demonstrate God's mercy to them. Now, I don't know what that's exactly going to mean for every single one of you. I don't know who are the needy people around you. For some of us, it might mean that we're going to engage in foster care. And we're going to bring in children who, who are needy, that, that have a father and a mother, but, but are in need of a safe place to live. It may mean engaging in foster care, and some of you are doing that. It may mean, it may mean engaging in adoption. And bringing a child or a son or a daughter into our homes and calling them son and daughter. And then being brought into our family. I know some of you are involved in that. It may be giving voice to those who are voiceless, like the unborn and the refugee. It may mean that we help those who are handicapped and we visit widows. Right? That, that we show up at a door and the only reason we are there is just to be present in their life. I don't know who are the needy people around you. Maybe it's that we engage in ministries like Jobs for Life, right? That, that we, we help those who are in need of employment and of learning how to get a job, right? And if that's something that you'd like to do, Mark Poole would love to talk to you. There are many ways that we can care for the needy in our midst, but, but I don't know what it may be exactly for you, but what I do know is that God's people, as we obey God's word, are going to be people of mercy. That we are going to see those in need around us, and we are going to seek to be demonstrators, ambassadors of the mercy that God has shown to us. 
That's what James is calling us to do. But the final place that James calls us to do God's word is related to our tongues. He says to flee from sin. He says dispense mercy, and he tells us to guard our tongues. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Man, that is a bold statement, y'all. Right? Like, if, if I just stood up here and I said, if you don't watch your tongue, your religion is worthless, you'd probably account it for, man, Penny's just making a point. Right? Pastors being all hyperbolic to try and make it right. The, a little over the top, Penny. No, no, no. James is saying that. He's telling us that the way we use our tongue is a direct reflection about what's going on inside our hearts. Right? He began this whole section with, My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to speak and quick to hear. I mean, talk about being distinctive from the world, right? Because we do not live in a slow to speak world, right? We live in an immediate response world. We live in a world where we find ourselves in conversations where it is clear that no one is listening to the conversation. We're just waiting for the person to stop talking so we can talk. <laughs> but God's people are to engage differently than that. We're not to be the people who are quick to fire off responses and fill the quiet with incessant chatter. No, we're to be people who listen. And I have to tell y'all, this is hard. Like, this requires the changing of our spirits and of our demeanors and of our inclinations by God's word. Because we can't do it on our own. Because we are inclined to want to speak, especially when we're convinced of how to solve the problem, right? I mean, I look out at y'all. I don't know all of you, but I know a lot of you, and y'all are very capable people. And y'all have a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience and a lot of abilities. And I imagine that there are many conversations that we all are engaged in where we know exactly what that person needs to do. And you might be right. But to be slow to speak and quick to listen may, means that we might need to actually listen and hear what the problem really is. And to just listen and be present in the midst of it. You know, I actually uh, had to confess this to one of my kids the other week. So one of my kids, um, I'm going to use the plural them so you can't figure out which one, but one of my children I was engaged in a little bit of conflict with. And in our conversation, I, I was uh, very quick to interject and to cut off and to tell them exactly how they were supposed to respond and what they were supposed to do. And then I was reading James. See, I've been reading through the book of James every week, every, you know, the whole book, so that, so that I can get the whole big perspective as we're getting into the weeds on Sunday morning. So I've been reading through it, and even before I was preparing for this sermon, I read verse 19, be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger. And, and I sat there thinking, man, with my child, I was very quick to speak and slow to listen. I realized that I was interrupting them and not allowing them an opportunity to speak. I realized that I wasn't, that even when I was letting them speak, I was very quickly discounting what they were saying. And I had to go and I had to say, I'm sorry. I had to go and I had to say that, 
that this verse showed me. I pulled out my Bible and I read that verse and said, Dad has not been patient in our conversing with one another. I wasn't listening. And I bet I'm not the only one who struggles with this. We're quick to interject our opinions and we don't hold back sharing our thoughts. But in doing that, I wonder if we're humbly submitting to God's word. You know the great apologist Francis Schaeffer? Francis Schaeffer knew a lot about a lot. And I imagine that in conversations with Francis Schaeffer, he had opinions about what should be done. (laughs) I can guarantee you he did because I've read some of his letters. He had a lot of opinions, and he probably was right in most of them. But Francis Schaeffer, this man who knew a lot about a lot, he once said that when he talked to people, if he had 60 minutes with someone, he would spend 45 of those 60 minutes asking questions and listening, and only 15 minutes speaking. I can't help but think that Schaeffer understood the importance of being slow to speak and quick to listen. And in doing that, he was living out. He wasn't just hearing, but he was doing God's word. And friends, that's what we're called to. You know, I'd like to tell you that uh, Dorian Gray realized that by ignoring what he saw in that portrait, it was to his own detriment. And that at some point in the book, that Dorian turned from his ways. I'd like to tell you that that after seeing himself in the grotesque picture of what his soul had become, that, that he fell to the ground and repented, and he changed his ways. But then it wouldn't be a dark book, would it? <laughs> no, he never changed his ways. Instead, he kept the portrait hidden and locked in that room, and he continued in his ways despite the darkness of what he had seen, and this led to his own demise. But friends, that's not us. We're the people of the word. And so let us throw off the cover that we place over the word and let us be hearers, not only hearers, but also doers of this word. This word that frees us. This word that by God's grace saves us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that Lord Jesus, though you have risen and ascended into heaven, that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your spirit to remind us of all the things that you have said, that you have left us your word that in conjunction with your spirit convicts us of our sin and leads us in the way that we are to go. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to your word, that you would make us people of it so that we would live in the freedom that you have bestowed upon us that we would be dispensers of mercy and fleers from sin and that we would guard our tongues so that you would be made much of in our lives and in this world. Help us to be people of your word, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.